Being trained in an effective crisis management system is imperative for minimizing behavioral issues and the need for restraint in schools and treatment facilities. But not all crisis management systems were created equal. If we are going to meet the growing intense behavioral needs of individuals while simultaneously reducing the need for restraints, every leader and policymaker who is involved in areas related to behavioral challenges should understand what a complete crisis management system is comprised of and how to embed one into any setting. For more information, check out crisisintervention.com. Welcome to the Crisis in Education podcast, where educational leaders and experts across the world dissect the root causes of issues and explore potential opportunities for sustainable improvement across schools and districts. And now your co-hosts, Dr. Polly and Drew. Welcome to the Crisis in Education podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Polly, and we're here with Drew today. Drew, how are you doing, brother? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking, Polly. Yeah, of course, man, of course. So, uh, man, it's been a, a couple of weeks since we were on. And, you know, for any of our listeners, uh, Drew and I have decided that we want to just have individual talks sometimes, you know, just just discussing education, what's going on, and kind of infuse a little bit of science into it because we're not always going to have, and probably oftentimes we're not going to have people in here that were educators and behavior scientists. And so we want to expose people to some of the science of human behavior because, in the end, producing student achievement, which is a really important result, right? In education, right? One of the most important results uh, requires people doing something more or less or differently. The students have to do something more or less or differently to, you know, to achieve their goals. The teachers need to do something more or less or differently to help the students and all the way up the ladder, right? Even all the way up to, you know, policymakers. And so everybody's got to engage in some sort of behavior enter, uh, you know, the science of human behavior for, for doing it. So uh, today, um, you know, Drew and I thought that we wanted to talk about some of the issues going on in schools in regards to behavior. Um, constantly, constantly, I'm in a bunch of groups, constantly I'm seeing people struggling with increases in the frequency and intensity of misbehavior um, in classroom and schools. And uh, man, it's having like a debilitating effect on student achievement, on teacher retention. People want to leave. I'm seeing principals in um, in posting these groups saying that I don't know that I can do this anymore. You know, it's just too much. And you know, there's there's a shortage. Or there's, there was already a shortage in education in terms of teachers, and now there's a, a there's a crisis level shortage. So when teachers are leaving, they're being replaced by substitutes. People some in, or uh, which is a better scenario, people who have at least passed the teacher certification exam. But just because you pass an exam doesn't mean that you understand and are prepared to teach. Having content knowledge in something is one thing. Being able to teach it and convey knowledge in a way where people learn, it's very complex. And, and you know, there's, in, in my opinion, Drew, there's nothing more important in our nation than educators. I believe they are the stars of the show, and I believe that the rest of us are supporting cast, right? The teachers are extremely important. And school leaders, you know, school leaders are so important. From the research I read, uh, and I've experienced this directly, um, as a former school leader and as, you know, a turnaround specialist and as a COO of a, uh, of a, a school, a private school, um, 
the school leader can impact student achievement by up to 34%. That's one person. One person can do that because they're bringing out the best in everybody else. But it's very difficult because in private organizations, you can leverage contingencies, right? You can leverage consequences. You can give people money for doing better. You can set up bonuses for them. You can give them time off. There's all these things that you can do to recognize and reinforce good performance. And also, on the other hand, if they're not doing well, you can say, hey, hit the door. You know, in education, it's very difficult. You can't do the first, right? There is no extra money to give teachers who are already underpaid. And, you know, firing a teacher, you know, first of all, if you fire them and they, who are we going to replace them with, right? Um, and it's that's a very difficult thing to do. And I'm like, yeah, I, you know, it, it, as a leader, if I have people who are failing, I always look inside and what do I need to do more or less or differently to bring out the best in them. And with the number of teachers who have been unsuccessful, it's the system that is failing them. You know, you have any, what, have you experienced that? I know you have kids in school. I know that you did work in clinics and you haven't been, you know, work directly in education, but from the outside looking in, what's your sense of things? Yeah, I, I see it. Um, especially at my kids' school. I've got a, a daughter in high school and a son in middle school. And a lot of, I know a lot of the teachers and a lot of the frustrations come from um, – a lot of the frustrations come from people, the teachers, being uh, – not knowing exactly what to do, not feeling motivated. Um, it's uh, – I've seen two of, my, two of my friends have actually left the education field in the last four months because of it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and a lot of that, no, not knowing what to do ties directly into misbehavior. Kids are misbehaving, you know, coming back to the original point. And um, most, you know, a lot of the teachers are coming in the field, not prepared to meet the demands, those behavioral demands, because they're not receiving any training or very little training in their, their prep course. And of course, you know, school leaders receive no training in that. You know, but I deal with it. That's yeah. That's one of the things I, I've actually been told that uh, the, the goalposts keep moving, uh, and they're not trained on on what the, the new goals are come into play, and they're not trained on how to uh, meet those goals. No, and and it's in in coming back to my previous point. So you know, if understanding behavior, which is one of the things that you know teachers are rarely trained in, and school leaders are not trained in the science of human behavior, because again, if we're going to bring out the best in the students, we have to bring out the best in the teachers, right? We have to look at teacher performance. Well, um, I, you know, I've done so much work in this area. You know, we were both behavior analysts and my focus has been on organizational behavior management uh, for, you know, improving, you know, especially focus on improving student behavior and um, in, in the schools. And what people would look at me as like the behavior guy when I went in there. And, um, you know, and I, I think that I don't actually, I'm not sure if they, they typically don't understand what's going on when we change behavior. They think that we are doing like talk therapy, right? That we're telling a student to do this, do that, do the other, and that's what's going to make the difference. And what I would say is that most people that are in the field uh, or that are out of the field um, think that that is the way that you make behavior change. But in the end, it's not. We have to change the environment. And mostly, almost always, Drew, almost always, if we are going to uh, change student behavior, we are going to need to change the behavior of the adults. 
and let me correct myself, not a, a behavior analyst. You're, you're a behavior scientist, right? Weren't you in the field as a behavior scientist or? Yeah, I took all the classes. I just yeah. went a different route with my career, but yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you're not the certified behavior analyst, but you're a behavior analyst. You know, there's a B, BCBA and, you know, there's still, you know, but anyways. So actually, I, I want to talk about that. One of the things that I learned at a very early in my career is you cannot treat a problem behavior in a problem environment. And you absolutely just spoke to that there. Uh, you have to change the behavior of the caregiver, whether it be a teacher, a parent, a direct support professional. You have to change their behavior if you're going to have any sort of meaningful behavior change. There. And th there you just said it. That was well said. And this is what people need to understand, that when you're, they're calling in, you know, when they're looking for behavior support, what that person is going to come in and they're going to look at all the behaviors around that student, right? And what does everybody need to do more or less or differently? What's the teacher need to do more or less or differently? Then what does the, the school leader need to do more or less or differently to support the behavior of the teacher or the performance of the teacher performance being their behavior and a result that they're trying to produce. And so, you know, that's a hard thing for people to understand. Um, but when they do understand it, they can be very deliberate in their approach, right? And they can understand, you know, in terms of what their planning needs to be and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't expect everybody to go spend six years in the university to become a behavior scientist, you know, being, being a classroom leader and, a, and a, a school leader and a district leader is already hard enough. So it's one of the reasons I wrote uh, one of my books, and this was the, uh, you know, my, my Wall Street Journal USA Today bestseller. And just for anybody listening, I'm not trying to sell a book here. <laughs> I make I'd like a dime on books. Honest to God, don't sell books. And I say this all the time because I just want to make sure people don't think that I'm trying to sell anything. I'm not. Go. I have articles everywhere. They're all free. There's YouTube videos. You can check out my YouTube. Honestly, I have 100 articles I've written out there on LinkedIn. Uh, I have 100 videos. And I always talk about how to use the science of human behavior to help people help themselves and to help other people. And that's why I wrote the book. So it would just be the science would be more accessible to people. And what what um, Brett and I did, my co-author, was take 100 years of science and boil it down into five, what we call five laws, right? You can think about five steps, five principles. Um, and, and what this, these are important for the district leader to understand, for the school leader to understand, for the classroom leader to understand, because it all has to do with bringing out the best in people, right? In the end, it's a chain. But as I mentioned, if I go backwards with that, if we want to change student behavior, we need to change teacher behavior. We're going to change teacher behavior. We got to change school leader behavior up to district leader, up to state leaders, right? So understanding these five laws can make, can and will make all the difference in the world. It's what I've done to help turn around failing schools, failing organizations, failing fighters, right? The same five laws to train mixed martial arts fighters who have achieved world champion statuses. So I want to unpack these five laws, if you don't mind, Drew, uh, so we can share it with you know, some of our listeners and whether it's a teacher listening to this or, or uh, you know, a, a principal or district leader, or maybe it's a behavior analyst or just a person, please send this audio to these folks because this will be helpful, right? So I want to start with law number one, and uh, that is pinpointing, okay? Um, now, there's two, there, there's two ways to look at pinpointing. And uh, one, and Drew, we talked about this off, um, you know, uh, off a uh, you know, before we got on the podcast here. Um, and that is if there's a problem going on and somebody is not performing to a standard, whether it's a student, whether it's a teacher, classroom leader, right? School leader, district leader, there's only two general reasons that that's happening. And before we intervene, before we intervene, we need to figure out why, 
what are those two reasons, right? And reason number one, I'm just listing at number one, is it can be a skill deficit, right? And if it's a skill deficit, well, the intervention then has to do with training, right? We have to make sure people have the skills. We can set up all the reinforcement in the world. We can try to consequence them, you know, using, you know, some sort of punishment and trying to get them to go in the right direction, which is a bad idea. Um, but, you know, in both cases, if they don't have the skills, how are they going to perform, right? And the other side of the coin is, is it a motivational deficit? Is it a will deficit? So skill versus will. And if it's a will deficit, that's a completely different approach, right? And it's like, you know, there's a number of things to consider. Um, and by the way, assessing, assessing skill deficit, the great thing about the science of human behavior is we keep it simple, right? We call it parsimony. It does not have to be anything and it should not be anything that's sophisticated. If I walked into a classroom, Drew, and I was the school leader and you weren't performing, say, classroom management, all right? I might ask you, can you tell me, Drew, what you're supposed to be doing, right? right? Ask you those details. And okay, if you could tell me that, I say, can you show me what you're supposed to be doing? Can Two, different yeah. <laughs> Two different things. Two different things. Yeah. Tell me. And, then, and then I say, um, and if you're showing me you're doing it slow, then I'm like, all right. He drew it just not fluent in this, right? He hasn't done it long enough and well enough. So it became automatic, right? And so, you know, if those are the cases, then I know that I just got to get you repetition and stuff. If you can't tell me what to do, but you can show me, okay, well, you know what? You have a level of knowledge with it. You know, I'm going to make sure that you understand this stuff. But, you know, that's how I can quickly assess this stuff. The will deficit can be something different, right? It could be something as simple as that. Maybe I don't understand the why. In, the, in our field, we call it, is there an establishing operation, right? Something that makes it more valuable for me, has a you know, value altering and a behavior altering effect. Does it make me want to engage in this behavior more because it's going to produce some sort of reinforcement for me, i.e. the reinforcement being kids are behaving better. Kids are learning more. My school leaders are coming by and giving me good feedback. You know, I'm not feeling as bad about everything that's going on. You know, and the teachers are struggling, by the way. Not only are student mental health issues up, but also teacher, educator mental health issues are up, right? It's in the behavior problems are exacerbating this stuff. So that's pinpointing performance issues of, you know, why goal are people are seeing the impact of their behavior, right? Are they seeing that if I engage in classroom management, that's producing a value and outcome for me? How often is the leader observing them? How often uh, are they giving them feedback? What kind of feedback is that, right? If it's usually feedback that's addressed to something that somebody's not doing, that leader becomes aversive to them and they will start to only perform in the presence of that person only to get out of trouble. And the problem with that is when people are behaving for fear of consequences is that they will do just enough to get by and only when the person who's dispensing the punishment, right, or can dispense it, is present. The same way you do the speed limit, typically only when the cops around, right, and that has a, a morale busting impact, a performance busting impact. This is when people start to leave the field. And one other thing to consider: Are we asking people to do too much at once? You know, if you've ever tried, if you if you've ever tried to do a whole bunch of things at one time, it's that old saying that if everything is important nothing's important, right? So we can, what the science has told us, we have to go slow to go fast. We can only focus on one or two or three things at a time. And then, you know, behaviors at a time before we start to fo focus on others. So it's very important that we figure out the pivotal behaviors, the behaviors that are going to give us are the most bang for our buck. That makes sense so far, Drew? Yeah, absolutely.
Absolutely. And the other thing, if you start to do too many things at once, you start to make errors and those errors just exasperate the problem because then you feel bad about doing the errors. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a mess. That's it, man. And then, right. And that has a morale busting back. So, so, so we're talking about now pinforming performance issues, right? So there's something I call the performance diagnostic checklist. I, I have one free on my LinkedIn. It's in all my books because it's such this tool that everybody needs to understand this stuff is a skill versus will issue. Um, you know, the other half of pinpointing now is that um, if we, if, if you're trying to make change in anywhere, any organization, in school, there's a result we want to see. So when we're all done, what is it, what is it supposed to look like, right? What do we, can we look back and say, we know we've completed our job. So since we're talking about misbehavior, right? Maybe we're trying to, let's just use the example that we're trying to reduce suspensions, right? We have the result we want to achieve, right? This end goal, think about it as an end goal. End goal being that we want to reduce suspensions by 50%, okay? Now, great, you know, and that might be a lofty goal. I don't know. It all depends on how many suspensions are going on at schools, but we'll just say, for example, and that's okay if it's if it's lofty, it's challenging. As long as we break that goal down into sub-goals, Right. Because if you if the goal is too big, people will never achieve it, and it's going to feel like to it's going to take the leader, whether it's the classroom leader or school leader or district leader, out of a position that where they can positively reinforce people for moving in the right direction. Right? They show people that by doing this, they are producing this outcome. Right? That makes sense so far. So absolutely, yeah, yeah. fantastic. Right? So we set so we quantify these things, but now and this is the big error that most leaders make everywhere. If you only look at these results, right? If you're only looking at the end goal and it was suspension, you might not see that data point move for a while. In fact, you might see it going up as you're trying to get your intervention going, right? Because it takes time to do this. So if we needed to, if we decided that by hitting this end goal, right? This final result, right? And we put it down to sub goals, you know, Hey, let's, let's start with a 5% reduction, Right. We still need to identify the pinpointed behavior that's going to move this. In other words, whatever we're doing right now is not working, right? Because our suspensions aren't where we want them to be. So we need people to do something more, less, or differently to begin moving in the right direction, right? And so let's say a couple things, right? Let's say we decided that yeah, we did our performance diagnostics and we're like, hey, our, our teachers aren't trained in classroom management, right? Um, they don't have a classroom management plan and they're not trained in basic behavior management. So like, you know, Drew, we have a course called everyday behavior tools, right. With behavior management. And that is like, you know, like you, it's a process, it's a skill for strengthening relationships. And when we have good relations with students, they're more likely to follow our directions and more likely to, you know, if we give them praise or feedback, taken in a positive way, or if we correct misbehavior, they're far less likely to get upset about it because, we have a good relationship with them, right? Uh, you know, how do we strengthen or reinforce the behaviors we want to see? How do we correct or punish the behaviors we don't want to see in a way that still maintains relationships, right? So this means the adults need to do something more or less or differently. So coming back to the accomplishments, if we, as part of our intervention, have determined that these people don't have a classroom management plan, they're not training everyday behavior tools, that would be an accomplishment. The number of people who have been trained right? In accomplishments. We could even, or, or in uh, uh, in everyday behavior tools, it could be a number of people who have completed a classroom management plan. Now, just because you're trained in it, and just because you have a 
customer management plan, that doesn't mean they're doing it yet, right? And that doesn't mean that we're going to see that result move, but it's a checklist that needs to come off that shows that we are moving in the right direction. It's something that the school leader can look at and reinforce the trainers for doing. It's something that school leader can report up to the district leader and say, hey, I know the suspension hasn't moved yet, but I've done this. It's something the classroom leader can say to the, the school leader, hey, I know I'm still getting a lot of behavior issues in my classroom, but I've written out half the classroom management plan. You know, I plan on getting the other half written out by the end of the week. And by next week, I'm going to begin teaching it. And then it could be the, you know, the amount of the classroom management plan that's been taught. Make sense so far? It does. So the, basically, you're talking about um, accomplishments on your way to the big overall goal, right? Yep. So who can, can those be set by the person? Could, are those always set by the administrator? Or can they be set by the person who's actually engaging in the behavior? Oh, well, well, first of all, that's a fantastic question, man. So here's you know, an, an, a hack when we talk about goal setting, right? When we set goals with people, we never want to do things to people. We want to do things with them, right? And so meeting with people and figuring out what's important to them, what they value. And sometimes you're like, maybe the administrator says, I know that you need to have a classroom management plan. You need to do this. They just need to do it. They're adults. Well, all right. But if you take that approach, that's a coercive approach and there's fallout for coercion, right? But if you ask a couple of good questions of people, right? And you help them see for themselves how this is going to benefit them, how it's going to align with their own values, because nobody wants to deal with misbehavior, Right. Everybody in school wants students to achieve, right? Nobody wants to receive negative feedback. Most people don't want to give negative feedback. You know, I'm not saying there's not a handful of people that just, you know, get stuck on that stuff, you know, but for the most part, there's a lot of good intention out there and we want to produce valued outcomes. So we need to involve people in goal setting. And while we're goal setting, we need to identify, hey, how would we know we're moving towards that sub goal, right? What are the things that we can accomplish, right? And sometimes like, if it's somebody like, let's say it's a new administrator coming to school. Well, an accomplishment, like district leaders will say, we need math to improve right away. It's going to tank. Well, performance change doesn't work that way. Sure. That administrator can come in and pull out the whip and start telling people you need to do this stuff now, or it's your job. You're going to get rid of, and they might see behavior change. Right. And they might start to move that result. And, well, well, this is working. It's a great thing. But that's one point of data. If you could have data on morale, if you could see in the future and see what retention is going to look like, there's all sorts of negative things in the other performance. All right, mass going up, but what about everything else that's going on, right? This has a long-term and a large scope negative ripple effect across performance, behavior, morale, retention. It's all bad. When you use coercion, it's all bad. So what's a leading indicator? What's an accomplishment? Well, accomplishment could be the number of people that that principal has met with to find out how they're feeling about things, right? And while they're doing that, they're asking the questions and they're engaging them and they're trying to involve them. So another accomplishment would be the number of relationships that have been developed, right? That you and I have talked about that, right? In terms of our own business, building a relationship with somebody is an important accomplishment because it opens up the door for doing some other things in the future, right? So that is something that even though that math result hasn't moved yet, this is something that can be reported out to people. So in general, think about comp accomplishments as countable nouns. And again, they're indicators that letting the performer know they're moving in the right direction, right? 
and it also lets the leader know they're moving in the right direction. So we can make sure that people are getting in touch with positive reinforcement. And when you don't have accomplishments, if you're only looking at that result, it can be demoralizing because it feels like nothing's moving. You don't feel like you've accomplished anything, right? You've done anything. This, the, the school leader is looking at you like you haven't done anything. The district's leader is looking at the school leader like nothing's been done because they're only looking at that result data. So it's very important that the performer along with the leader, right? The person that's supervising, identify goals, engage them with it, identify accomplishments that let people know that could be mile markers that are letting you know that you're moving that direction. Identify the behaviors that are going to help you to accomplish those things during the day. We call it reverse behavior engineering, starting with the end in mind, which is a very simple thing. You always start with the result and what we need to do to move towards that result and how we're going to measure getting there. Make sense so far? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So now here's like the big hack for educators, right? So we, we talked about goals and by the way, educators are very familiar with smart goals, and in, in their field, they talk about SMART being specific, measurable, attainable, uh, relevant, and uh, time-bound, right? Um, in the SMART that I use in my work, they're still it's very similar, but it's specific, right? So specific, you know, what do we want to achieve and with a specific date? The M stands for motivational, right? And the others are the same. The T ends up standing for trackable, so we'll still measure it. I would argue that if that goal is not motivational, it's not SMART. It's not smart, right? So that's why engaging people in questions to find out what's valuable to them and how aligning or engaging these behaviors is going to help them move towards those valued and help produce those outcomes is critical to success of people achieving goals. So the next part of this now is that once you know what result, what end goal you're trying to produce, what behaviors we need to engage in, we've outlined what metrics are going to let us know we're moving in that direction, like in terms of accomplishments. Now, leaders are going to love this, whether it's the classroom leader working with the students, whether it's the school leader working with the classroom leaders or district leaders down, even up to the state. Self-monitoring and reporting out. It's so important, so valuable. There's a lot of research to support this. Now, I struggled to get around and see all these teachers performing all the time when I was in school, right? I was dealing with behavior. This was popping off. Parents are coming up. It's very difficult. Very difficult running, being a leader in education, again, whether it's a classroom or school leader, especially. And so um, while I can't get around to 30 teachers, 40 teachers, 20 teachers, I can certainly have 20, 30, 40 teachers looking at their own behaviors, right? Their own performance and reporting out. This is the self-monitoring report out. Now, and some people say, well, you know, the union says you can't make teachers do this. I don't know what's going on with the union and that stuff. Okay. I'm just talking about a scientific way for making stuff to happen. I can tell you that if people value the goal, they are not going to mind self-monitoring reporting out because they know that this is a way to help them engage in habits, develop the habits they need to do to be successful, move them towards a valued outcome. I've done this all the time. I've coached for years of coaching when people value what they're doing then they don't mind self-monitoring when it's a couple things, right? For example, a pivotal behavior in education is asking questions aligned with the standard. The more questions you ask, the more engaged students are. The more engaged they are, the less they're going to misbehave. And when it's aligned with the standard, the more they're learning. So you're producing student achievement. That's a valued outcome for most people, right? But asking questions is a habit. I go into classrooms a lot. I see teachers doing a lot of talking. And when you do a lot of talking, the more talking the teacher is doing, the less learning that's going on, right? We need people to engage with the work. 
and we need them to think about it. We need them to do stuff with it. And this is where active student responding or opportunities to respond goes in. That could be one of the pinpointed behaviors that's going to be working on, right? Or it could be the everyday behavior tool stuff where it's like, all right, did you engage in, you know, using this, the strengthening behavior tool? And so we might ask the teacher, hey, can you self-monitor and report out? It could be to start with, because you just learned this every day at the end of the day, you know, how many times do you think you use this tool, you know? The idea being that when they have to think about doing it, right, and they're going to very likely be honest about them reporting out. And if they also know that you're going to intermittently come around and directly observe, right? So you have inner observer agreement. Hey, here's what you're saying you're doing and the outcome is producing. I'm seeing it puts me in a position to positively reinforce you. I used to do it with just a, a, a text. I would have my coaches when I was trying to get them to engage in good coaching questions and they saw value in it. They would text me every day at the end of the day and say, hey, I was able to engage in this many coaching questions, uh, you know, and, and I would say, what did you see as a result of that? Well, man, I got to assess them more. I saw that they were doing all sorts of things, so I couldn't be there. I got to ask good questions and problem solve with them. And they started, you know, becoming better performers as a result of that. And when that coach, my coachee, who was coaching somebody else, saw that, that became reinforcing to them, right? And so this becomes an extremely powerful thing to get things to stick for people. You with me so far? Yeah, I am. I just had a quick question, uh, just some clarification. When you say inner observer agreement, uh, are there certain benchmarks that you're looking for, percentage of agreement, things like that? I, I don't make, I keep it as simple as possible, right? So, so you say that you're delivering behavior specific praise, right? Or you say you're asking questions aligned with a standard, okay? I come in and you're doing it on average when you're doing a whole group activity of, you know, four times a minute, you know, and you're doing core responding. Maybe you're saying that or using whiteboards, response boards, right? And so like, all right, you're saying it and you're seeing that students are more engaged. I come in, I see you saying it and the students are engaged. I'm like, you're freaking awesome, man. Thank you so much. Or maybe I see that, you know what? I see you giving praise to the student, right? Which is better because you used to only correct misbehavior, but you're telling them to be a good job. I'm like, you know what? You've upped the frequency of your praise. Now let to make it a little bit better. Let's turn it into sp behavior specific praise. Let's let them know what they're doing right, right? Or I see you correcting misbehavior, um, but and you're and you're doing it, you know, like we talked about. You're keeping it brief, you, you know. But maybe you're just doing it as a brief reprimand, and you're not tying it into some other sort of consequence, right? Like, all right, well, you know, you've done that a lot. What's going to happen next? You know, so because they don't have the tools to do it. So I get them to think about it. I teach to make sure they have the skills. I get them to think about it, report out. And remember, the more you think about something, right, it's like this deliberate practice, the more you're likely to engage in the behavior. So it's deliberate practice. And I look at that school leader coming in as engaging in deliberate coaching, deliberate practice about being precise, uh, purposeful, and systematic with a skill you're working on, right, thinking about it long enough so you no longer have to think about it. You think about it, you produce the outcome, and then it becomes a habit, right? And that's what deliberate coaching is, helping somebody engage in behavior long enough and well enough that they're going to produce that valued outcome. And when they know you're going to come around to look and they're reporting out what they're doing, it just increases the likelihood that they're going to do that stuff and get them in touch with positive reinforcement. Drew, I've been to schools that have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on amazing trainings, really good trainings. You go back into the school the next week and teachers were very engaged with it. You could be hard pressed to find 5% of what they were taught going on because there was no you know, a process for them working on a couple of behaviors, 
you know, in, for any of the educators out there, there's something called cooperative learning or Kagan structures. You would know this stuff. It's just, you know, way to, you know, engage students in, you know, in, in their own learning and work with their peers. Um, and they have these structures and they could be like, you're working on two structures a week and everybody's working on those structures, you know, and ever reports out that they're doing it. And I go around, I just check and I catch them being good doing it. And I'm like, Hey, you know, I, I walked through today and I saw 70% of you guys doing this great job. Right. So I reinforce growth. I know when I come by tomorrow, we're going to get that bad boy up to 82% or something like that, you know? So we're systematically reinforcing growth of people performing what they had just learned. Right. And so this is the feedback piece of it, right? So as I'm going around, people self-monitoring report back, and this is the, the third, the, the fourth law, and that's the reciprocal feedback. I'm really looking to catch people being good. I'm really looking to reinforce incremental growth. Um, I, it's And it's not just what I say, it's how I say it, when I say it, how often I say it, right? I want my presence to be a positive reinforcer, a positive stimulus to the people in the environment. And that happens as a result of my behavior, right? How do I behave towards those when I'm seeing them? If I'm only seeing them and I'm only catching them being bad or catching them not performing to a standard, my presence will become aversive. And we've all worked with those people. We've all showed up to work and saw that guy or gal's car in the driveway. You're like, oh God, you know, this is miserable. I don't want to go in today. Or they're absent and you felt like you're off for the day. Have you been there, brother? I, I, yeah, I'm pleading the fifth on that one. <laughs> yeah, man. We all have, man. We all have. And it's the same thing for the, the, the teachers, right? You've all been, you have that one student that you're like, oh my God, man, I'm going to pull my hair out, you know? And the, the student calls out for the day. You're like, oh, thank God. It's not that we don't love kids, you know what I mean? But it's hard when that behavior becomes so aversive to you. And I would say good people engage in this feedback stuff, catching people with bad, not because they're bad people, but because they see it work temporarily they win the battle but they lose the war right they see people change their behavior and that's not the way to go about it you do the things i've talked about up to this point they're just not my opinion this is all rooted in the science of human behavior but here's the thing it's called reciprocal feedback because it's bi-directional it's two ways feedback should not be one way i'm giving you feedback about your performance but you are giving me feedback about my performance right and there's research from the classroom on up about teachers soliciting feedback from the students. How am I doing teaching you? How do you feel in here? Do you feel safe, right? Marzano's got some really good research on this stuff. You know, there's some meta-analysis stuff that he's done on it. It's the school leader checking in with the uh, teachers. Hey, how do you feel? You know, do you think we're, you know, moving towards our goals? How do you feel about the way we're moving towards the goals? How do you feel about the way that I'm leading and involving you with stuff? And, you know, education does this, Drew, but they do it at the end of the year, it's, oh. it's, <laughs> it, it, yeah, there's, there's value in the immediacy of feedback. <laughs> it's yeah. just, a, that's a rule. It's, it's a rule, man. Feedback is, and so that's an autopsy, number one. But the analogy I'll give, especially when you're learning something new, right, is that if you were going driving somewhere uh, in New York City, and I always use that because it's a big city, everybody knows that, and you're listening to your GPS, it's giving you feedback on where to go when it turned, but it was delayed. It was only coming on every 20 minutes. You're going to get lost. And it's not efficient. 
and you're going to feel frustrated and you're not going to see yourself accomplishing anything and moving towards that end goal, right? You're never going to get anywhere. And and you, you don't might, have the chance to correct any errors either. <laughs> that's it, man. You're learning through trial and error. And that's not what we want to do, man. We don't want people to learn through trial and error. We want them to be systematic because it's more efficient and it's less frustrating. And as they're learning, they're not only they're learning at the expense of themselves, but they're learning at the expense of the students, the teachers, taxpayers, all these things are going on. And this is why we need to leverage the science of human behavior. So having, I would, listen, we, in the organization I worked at, we had reciprocal feedback, a, a survey every week, checking in, right? I would say at a minimum, do it every month. Um, I would say every week, if it's like a turnaround school and there's a lot of behaviors and there's lots of change going on because we want to check in with the people. We need to see how they're feeling about things. We need to say, and sometimes it's mismessaging. They might feel one thing, but it's a misperception, right? And so it allows us the opportunity to change that perception. We say, hey, I know it looks this way, but here's what's going on. Oh, okay. Thanks very much. Or they're right. You have 80% of the people saying and seeing this thing. And like, you know what? Thank you so much for that feedback. Let me take what you said, go back and see what we can do and make those changes. And when you act on their feedback, that has an amazing strengthening effect, right? And trust and performance and morale, all these things. And maybe there's also some things that you just can't change, right? And you explain the why behind it. And people are like, okay, that makes sense, you know? Yeah, in that case, I, just, just having someone listen to you is valuable enough. It, it, it is so valuable. And we're so rushed with things. And I know this is one of the things that we talk about in everyday behavior tools, right? Just listening is a part of building relationships with people. Putting the phone down for a second, making time can have a huge and long positively reinforcing because if, if you don't have a relationship with people, relationship is fundamental to everything that's going on in education. It is fundamental up the chain. People need to trust, believe in you. They need to believe in the vision. They need to know what they need to do, how often they need to do it. They need to know if they do it, what they should see as a result of it, right? All these things need to happen and it's covered within the five laws, right? So the final law, Drew, and this is the most important, none of anything else that I just talked about, they all work together, Okay but none of it will work without positive reinforcement. And here's the thing. People don't understand positive reinforcement. They think that all it is, is getting people, there's been books been punished by rewards by Alfie Cohn, you know, Dan Pink, Daniel Pink, who is a great writer. He wrote Drive and all this other stuff, right? He doesn't understand it. They think rewards are just telling somebody a good job, giving them a raffle ticket, bonuses, teacher of the month or whatever, which by the way, don't do that. You know, that's making a bunch of more losers than winners. Have a criteria and everybody could be a, a teacher of the month, right? Set goals for each person and they could reach that criteria. That has a performance, you know, dampening effect, not an enhancing effect. Um, but positive reinforcement is just something that occurs that's added to you, a stimulus that's added that increases the likelihood that you're going to behave. You behave one way, it produces an outcome, right? And you're going to keep doing it. And so in general, um, when people do something like, as I said, if, if I engage in a behavior and I see students are more engaged and, I, and that's a value to me, that's positive reinforcement, right? I'm not, nobody's got to come behind me and tell me to do that thing again. I want to keep I get doing a sticker it. for that. <laughs> if you want, you know, right, exactly. You know, but the sticker would come in if I didn't understand engaging in that behavior and I didn't believe it's going to produce the outcome. The stickers are intended to move person people towards that naturally occurring consequence, right? It's not, it's not the end goal. It's the means to the end. The same thing with the, the students. Nobody wants to have to give them extrinsic stuff. 
Nobody wants to. But if that math, if getting that math grade is not valuable to them, if uh, you know learning that math isn't valuable, if they don't like to read, we need to foster some sort of reinforcement to help them move in that direction with the goal being that that once they learn to read, like, oh, I value reading. Nobody's coming out and giving me a bunch of stickers for reading when I read stuff. The re- positive reinforcement is the knowledge that's added to me. It's turning that page because I don't know what's going to happen next in a, in a mystery novel, you know, and all those things are reinforcing to me. So this is incredibly important for people to understand that, that understand what people value, help them to engage in a behavior that's going to produce that valued outcome. But sometimes we got to connect the dots with these extrinsic reinforcers, right? In order to get them to, for, for, for layman terms in touch with intrinsic reinforcement, right? So they do value those outcomes, but we just got to connect the dots. So understanding those things. And by the way, if you're, if you're giving somebody something as a reward, but it's not changing their behavior, it might be well-intended, but it's not a reinforcer. The measure of a reinforcement is based on the impact of the future occurrence of that behavior. Is the behavior occurring more as a result of what you're doing? If it is, then there's a good chance that what you did was indeed a positive reinforcer. And so, you know, in classrooms, a teacher might, you know, for a student whose behavior functions for attention and they keep correcting their misbehavior and it's teacher attention rather, well, they actually might be reinforcing that student's behavior because when student acts out the teacher reprimands them that's something that's added as a result of their behavior so the teacher is inadvertently positively reinforcing that and that only comes by the way when when people don't have good relationships nobody wants to piss somebody else off they have a good relationship right that's what's fundamental to everything else right so drew those were the five laws and i think that every person in education every person in the world can leverage this stuff but if if people understand this practical application of science, they will be able to improve student behavior. They will be able to improve student achievement. They will be able to improve educator performance at all levels. And it's all captured through those five simple laws that I just reviewed. Yeah, I, 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 I like the approach. You know, most people think of uh, ABA being only applied to behavior service plans or to someone's treatment plan. Uh, it's the science of human behavior, everyone. Um, it's a, you can apply it in a systematic way to a school, just like Polly laid out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, anyways, well, you know, Drew, I think I, I did a whole bunch of talking, brother. Um, I hope, uh, you know, that people got something from this, from the five laws. Um, you know, please, uh, you know, follow me on uh, LinkedIn if you, you know, interested in any of the articles that we wrote. Um, we did mention, you know, everyday behavior tools at the beginning of this and throughout. Like, it is a real thing. It really does help improve behavior. So, you know, if you're interested in that, just check out crisisintervention.com. We have it listed on the website there. But, Drew, good to see you, brother. And, uh, you know, we'll do this again soon. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, everyone. Bye.